0: Our sermon text this morning is Romans 1, verses 18 through 32, and I'll be reading from the Pew Bible. I think it's the English Standard Version. Uh, It's on page, let's see, page 939. So uh, please follow along as I read. Romans 1, beginning in verse 18. though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. So
1: Catherine Miller is a writer for BuzzFeed, and she did an article back in September entitled, uh, We Found Rage in a Hopeless Place. (laughs) And she, she deems 2021 as the year of rage. And she tries to go through and catalog the various kinds of rage and anger that we've been experiencing over the last couple of years. The first one she identifies is what she calls sudden rage. For whatever reason, this has appeared most prominently in the airline industry. So apparently in 2021, there were 4,000 incidents, incidences of what they call passenger, um, passenger disruption, 4,000. Three fourths of those 3,000 of those 4,000 were over wearing masks which I find so strange because it seems like such a calculating rage to do something where like you knew they were going to require you to have that on. Right? The second kind he, she catalogs is what she calls deep moral anger. This, this is the anger from, from really our healthcare professionals and providers when they saw yet another wave and yet another wave from the pandemic. And they would simply cry out and say, this is just not right. Especially as it starts to overwhelm all their resources. Third kind she catalogs is what she calls online anger. And there's been no end to the research that people are doing on trying to figure out why it is that when we get online, we're just emboldened to be that much more cruel uh, than we would face-to-face with people. Maybe it's the ease of social media posts or the the cloak of anonymity. Who knows? Uh, But it led NBA star Kevin Durant to say, hatred actually is another form of passion. And therefore, a sign that you still know that you're alive. (laughs) Okay, whatever. Whatever the point was, what she's saying is is that we are experiencing a season of anger and hostility that heretofore has been unknown to most of us. And what that means is, is that we're also trying to figure out what to do with it. Now, I'm not talking about the means by which you cope with your anger, you know, like take a time out or count to 10. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying we don't know where to put our anger, how to understand our anger. Because, look, let's be honest. Sometimes when we're angry, we feel like we have a deep need to be angry. We know that there's this thing called a justified or a righteous anger, but we wonder whether what we're doing is exactly that. There was an early American preacher by the name of John Christensen who said, he that is angry without cause sins. But he that is not angry when there is cause also sins. And I think that's where a believing person finds themselves. We're simply searching for a place to know whether my anger is appropriate, whether it's justified. Now, how much more then do we search for answers to the roots of anger when we know that someone else is angry with us? The auntie gets up. I mean, when's the last time, if ever, you found that someone uh, was mad at you? You know, you're pushing your cart through Walmart, and you stop to visit with a friend. And at one point in the conversation, they say, hey, look, are you in so-and-so okay? I mean, I was kind of talking to them the other day, and, well, they seem pretty irritated at you. Or maybe you're in your office tomorrow morning, and a coworker peeps his door, peeps his head around the door. And is like, um, hey, you know, you, we've got a situation that you might want to be aware of with so-and-so. He's over in the boss's office right now, bending his ear about you. Now, in a room this large, my guess is your responses to this revelation would be probably as different as there are people, but some of you I think would be thrown into sort of this deep restless panic, right? That would go on for days until you resolved it. Others of you, and you know who you are, kind of thrive on the drama a little bit. You sort of like a little bit of the action. But one thing is almost for sure, you would not be able to resist the almost uncontrollable urge to look into the situation and figure out what's going on. Wait, what, someone said what? what? What did you hear, we would say. Look, we're looking this entire semester at the book of Romans and trying to figure out a way to get through what has become in our culture the ordinariness of the Christian faith by returning to these foundational truths. And when Paul unpacks this in the gospel, we saw last week that he was not ashamed of the gospel because it was the gospel of salvation. But that salvation begs a question, salvation from what? And verse 18 gives the answer, it is we are saved from God's anger. (laughs) Now, My guess is that would get your attention. In other words, what would you do if your friend sort of came around the corner tomorrow and was like, hey, God is really mad at you, what did you do? That would get our attention. And my guess is that nothing will purge us of the ordinariness of of, of the Christian message when we realize that the stakes are as high as God's wrath being directed at people specifically. Now, I also realize I could not have opened up a bigger can of worms. So let's dive into this and look at it under three particular headings. I want to understand, first of all, that God is angering. I want to see why he's angering. And then thirdly, and most importantly, we need to recognize how he is angry. Let's get that first one, that God is angry. Now look, I'm trying to imagine the range of responses that, I don't know, a typical modern Oxford person would have to verses like this, God is angry with you. Uh, My guess is there's a a population here that would be like, terrific, another six months of therapy for me, I guess. That'll be wonderful. Thanks for that little help. In other words, it sounds a lot like, um, I don't know, psychological dysfunction to think of God as being angry. Others of you will feel a wash of guilt stream over over you. And you'll remember back to that time of the fundamentalist church that you grew up in, where God's anger was kind of held over you to kind of force you into the behavior that you were supposed to be doing. While still others of you, I think, are going to say to yourself, oh, this is that kind of place. I get it. Yeah, all these people, you've got an angry God out there. Fine, whatever. That is primitive. Are we really going back to that kind of stuff? Are we really going to go back to that fundamentalistic religion? So it's important for us to establish exactly what the text says. Look at verse 18 again. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What I really want you to note for this first point is simply this, did you notice the verb tense? The wrath of God is revealed. It means it's not something we're talking about in the past, but it is a present living reality towards sin. It's going on now. And I realize that for this generation, I don't think we have any idea what to do with the passages passages like this. I think typically the reason is, is because when we hear about God's wrath, we tend to project onto him our versions of wrath, our ideas of it. And so what happens is you get God who gets polarized into one of two extremes. On the one hand, God is exactly like us in that he flies off the handle. You know, his anger is often malicious, sometimes even vindictive. You know, like we are. On the other hand, God is, uh, the other opposite reaction is, is He's just above anger. Anger is inappropriate for human beings, and therefore, like us, He represses all of His negative emo- emotion. Is that it? Well, the great theologian, late theologian John Stott says that God's wrath is not ar- arbitrary or capricious, but He says rather it is a settled, controlled, very holy antagonism to all that is evil. I think he's worth quoting at length here. Bear with me. He says, The kind of God that appeals to most people today would be easygoing in his toleration of our offenses. He would be gentle, kind, accommodating. He would have no violent reactions. Unhappily, even in the church, we seem to have lost the vision of the majesty of God. There is much shallowness and levity among us. It must even be said that our evangelical emphasis on the atonement, salvation by grace in faith in Jesus, is dangerous if we come to it too quickly. Hmm. We learn to appreciate the access to God which Christ has won only after we have first cried, Woe is me, for I am lost. He says the wrath of God then is almost totally different from human anger. It doesn't mean that God loses his temper, flies into a a rage, or is ever malicious, spiteful, or vindictive. The alternative to wrath is not love, but neutrality in moral conflict. And God is not neutral. On the contrary, God's wrath is his holy hostility to evil. His refusal to condone it or come to terms with it, it is his just judgment on it great theologian John Murray says something along the same line in his classic book, Redemption, Accomplished and Applied, when he says, Far too frequently we fail to entertain the gravity of this fact. Hence, the reality of our sin and the reality of the wrath of God upon us for our sin don't come into our reckoning. We're not imbued with a profound sense of the reality of God, of his majesty and holiness. And sin, if we reckon with it at all, is a little more than misfortune or maladjustment. My point is, is that we have to be careful not to shy away from this truth, even if we have a tendency oftentimes to misconstrue it. Because there's a sense in which the doctrine of the wrath of God, it, it's got to sit in us and stew in us until we have purged from our imaginations all of those visions of his anger, or anger that we were taught by our parents and by our peers. Contrary to those, God's anger is clean. God's anger is clear headed. It's unyielding. And it is an in inevitable opposition to anything that is said against His will. And the point for our purposes in this series is if we don't allow this to unsettle us, then little wonder that the announcement of God's grace in Jesus kind of lays on us so lightly. We complain all the time about spiritual apathy. I feel like I'm spiritually apathetic these days. Maybe it's because we skipped a step, as it were, and we've not come to terms with this wrath of God. So that's the first point, that God is angry. But secondly, and hopefully it leads you to the question, well, why is God angry? What is the nature of his anger? Well, I think I can summarize verses 18 through 32 very simply in one sentence. It goes like this. God is angry because people who know better worship things instead of him. Let me say that again. God is angry because people who know better worship things instead of him. Let's break that down into those two parts. First of all, God's anger is leveled at a people who know better. Look at verses 19 to 21. And honestly, if you really take them for what they're worth, it's crazy controversial. Because Paul is saying that deep down, Every human being, no matter what they tell themselves, have all kinds of the knowledge of God. Not only that, it's knowledge, according to verse 20, that there is a creator God and that you and I are completely dependent upon him. Uh, Oftentimes, and you've heard me do this oftentimes, I quote from a very seminal moment in my campus ministry history where a young man at the University of Memphis looked at me and said, Les, here's my question. Why is God hiding Because if God wants us to believe in him so badly, why doesn't he make himself more obvious? Now, surely you resonate with that to some degree. We say things to each other like this. Well, you know, seeing is believing. Have you ever thought about that phrase? Because if that's true, then it's as if God has denied us as humans the essential element to be able to believe. Namely, seeing. If I can't see God, how how am I going to believe in him? But here's where the Bible starts to get all psychological on you. You go to places, and and I'm so glad that we actually recited it this morning when we began, in Psalm 19, because you see David and something has, has moved him. For whatever reason, we think in the Psalm that David was watching the sun moving through the sky through a clear day. And he sits down and gets poetic about it in Psalm 19. And he says this, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Their voice goes out through all the earth. Now look, as hard as this is to stomach, at the heart of Christian teaching is this statement of a fact that God is in fact not hiding. He's not hiding. Quite the opposite. At the very moment, at this very moment, he is making himself absolutely obvious. Theologians have made a really helpful distinction between what we call special revelation and what we might call natural revelation of God. Special revelation of God is that specific, very objective knowledge we get of God in the Bible, in Holy Scripture, special revelation. Natural revelation, on the other hand, is what we pick up from God from the world around us. It's what we get from sunsets, from majestic mountain ranges, from the deep space photos that uh, Hubble takes, or now the Webb telescope is going to show us all kinds of things. It's going to be amazing. But for our purposes, the Bible's claim is, and honestly, if you want to get offended by something in the Bible, this is a great place to start, that all of that information makes God obvious. Look at verse 20. It says that these things have been clearly perceived. He's not hiding. But what verse 21 tells us is, is that it is in fact us that are hiding from him. Why? Why? Because we know that if we acknowledge God to be who he is, we can't be in control anymore. Human beings are stuck in a matrix of our own creation where we can persist in believing that we're the ones that are in control of our own destinies. That's the problem. Look, don't miss the Bible's explanation for why people don't believe in God. It is because we willfully bury the truth that God might be there willfully. Verse 18 says that we suppress the truth. That verb there means to actively hold down like you would a wild animal. The Bible says there is a wild animal inside of you that you are actively trying to hold down by fixing over your eyes, over your senses, anti-God goggles so that you filter out anything that might help us admit that he's actually there. Anybody offended yet? (laughs) But wait, there's more. It not only says that these are human beings who know better, but that actually we rob God of the appreciation that he deserves as God. And we end up giving it to, we end up giving it well to things. Verses 23 describes things like birds and animals and creeping things. Tim Keller makes the point in verse 25 where it says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. He says, what you'll notice about that verse is, is there's no option not to worship something. We all worship something. Human beings have to live for something. Something has to capture my imagination. Something is going to gain my highest allegiance. Something is going to become the resting place for all of my deepest hopes. And every human being has to look at something and say, if I have that, my life makes sense. And I'm somebody. So what is that for you? Because whatever that is, that's what you worship. That's actually what worship is. And the truth of the matter is, is anything can become an idol. In verses 26 and 27, Paul actually goes to sexual desires, especially homosexual desires. Now, bear with me for a moment. Um, Why did Paul go in that particular direction in those verses? And you can imagine how much ink there is spilled over this question. But I don't think it's all that complicated. Sex was a good gift of God's creation. Paul knows this. Man, though, again, with the anti-God goggles on, twisted that good creation into the opposite of what it was intended to be used for. And for Paul in the moment, homosexual sex acts are a vivid demonstration of the reversal of God's design for sexuality. He does not choose it because it's the worst of all the sins, Please make that distinction. It's actually important. He simply chooses it because it's very illustrative of the point. (laughs) I'll wait on your emails tomorrow morning. Now look, if this was the only time in which he mentioned idolatry, you might think to yourself, Paul seems to have sex on the brain, maybe a little bit pervy, I don't know. But that's not the case. If you go to other places like Colossians 3 verse 5, there he actually calls covetousness idolatry as well. In other words, he says materialism, love of money, can also be idolatry. Idolatry is looking to something for value and safety more than I look to God for value and safety. That's what he's going after. He is the only thing that I was built to value in an ultimate sense. Now, if that's true, do you realize how also our religion can become idolatrous as well? Hmm, you're not off the hook just because you're here on Sunday mornings, even being religious can be idolatrous. If I'm trusting in my Bible reading, if I'm trusting in my church going, <laughs> if I'm trusting in my, in my winning, uh, sparkling parenting to produce these glorious children to earn favor with God, then what you call your faith is actually an idol to you. Look, until you start to use the framework of idolatry, I really don't know if you know anything about your life. Years ago, I read an article by the late David Paulison. It's worth you looking up. It's called Vanity Fair and Idols of the Heart. And what Paulison says is, is the human personality, what you say is just you, is nothing more than this collection. He says a complex of various idolatries that come out and help form our sense of self. Think about it. Why do you do what you do? Why do you fly off the handle? Why do I react to those particular triggers in life? What is it that makes me so sad? What is it that makes me so elated? Because at the heart of the matter is a complex of idols that are actively trying to fashion me into their image. And you ready for this? God's not happy about it. He's, He's angry at that. Because people have set something at the center of their hearts that was never designed to be in the center, and the effects of it are disastrous. It hurts people, which makes for a nice lead into the third point, and that is the question of, well, how is God angry? In other words, how do I notice it? How do I see this wrath? Look at verses 24 and 26 and 28. Because all three of those verses use a key phrase that is absolutely central to understanding the manner of God's wrath and therefore the way in which we can recognize it. Look what it says. God's anger is manifest in us by, quote, giving them over. Verse 24 describes what we're given over to, and it says there the word we have translated as the word lust. And again, our mind goes immediately to sex, but that word meant much more than just sex. The word literally translated means an over-desire. It means a super-desire, an inordinate desire. I think what Paul is talking about is he's talking about addiction. He's talking about addiction. He's saying the peculiar nature of idolatry is that it leads you to the very thing that you did not want in the thing. In other words, we go to our idols for control over life, but in the end, it's our idols that control us. Your idols actually don't free you, they turn you into robots and slaves. You don't just experience disappointments in life, but you're consumed by them, and because you've rested so much in them, when they get threatened, I start thinking about taking my own life. Whatever leads somebody to suicide, here we go. That's addiction. And being controlled by our idols, this is the point, dehumanizes us. And it teaches us to dehumanize each other. We become like animals. There's a whole theology of becoming like animals in the Bible. I wish we had time to go into it. We become like animals. We consume each other. That list in verses 29 through 31 of all those things, that's nothing more than a description of relational and societal consumers that are not giving anything back, but are feeding on the world, taking for themselves. So exactly the reason why Paul, in Galatians 5.15, warns his people to stop biting and devouring each other. He's not warning them against cannibalism. He's saying that your idolatry hurts people. You're hurting yourself and the people around you are being hurt by this and God doesn't like it because you're in his image. Look, like imagine for a moment two women who have just lost their jobs at exactly the same time. The first one is deeply disappointed. She, she loses sleep. She worries mightily about what she's going to do. But as the days pass into weeks and the weeks pass into months, she finds herself getting over it. She finds herself able to cope. The second woman, though, on the other hand, is not just disappointed, she's devastated. She cries herself to sleep at nights out of pure rage. She lashes out to, for weeks to her closest friends. She can't notice how unhealthy she's become. She begins to medicate by day drinking. She looks for opportunities to run down her former employer. If you ask her about it, even years later, she'll pour out vitriol over it. So much so that it's an area that when you ask her friends, they're like, you know what? <clears throat> we just don't go there. Now here's my question, what's the difference? Two women, exactly the same circumstance, but wildly different reactions, why? Same for men, by the way. It all goes back to idolatry. The idolatry of the latter, though, is hurting her. And it's hurting the people around them. But the thing is, she can't live without it. We can't live without our idols. That's addiction. That's having been given over. A couple weeks ago, I had my, uh, my uh, music on shuffle on my phone and uh, a song came up by one of my favorite eighties vocalists, uh, Carla Bonoff. Anybody remember Carla Bonoff? She needs to be rediscovered. She's fantastic. And the song was called Lose Again. I, it's completely pathetic music. If you're depressed, turn on Carla Bonoff, right? The chorus goes like this. She says, she says, nothing can free me from this ball and chain. I made up my mind that I would leave today. But you're keeping me going. I know it's insane, but I love you and then lose again. (laughs) I love that. Is that you? What is it that you want more than anything else to be free of, but that thing is the thing that's keeping you going? That's insanity. And what Paul is saying is that insanity is God's wrath. It is his anger directed at his people right now. It is making a beautiful creation that he has made, and we are destroying it. God is a God who owns the cattle of a thousand hills, which includes human beings. And he takes it personally. When creatures created in his image, namely you, are hurting themselves. What the devil wants is he wants the destruction of the host. And when he comes and enters a life and brings out all the beauties of idolatry and holds it out to you saying this... This is where life is. He makes us addicted to it. Here's my point. We are not spiritually healthy until we settle in and come to grips with the fact that I'm an addict. That we have to stand up at every sort of meeting and say, my name's Les Newsome. And let me list for you the ways in which I can't do anything about my own condition. That's where Christianity begins, y'all. Now look, I can't even close this without acknowledging the fact that I realize there's not a lot of light in this passage when it comes to the solution. But before we finish, can I give one small little thought? Because if we set it up this way, I hope it won't be that hard for you to conceive the means by which God is going to cure our addictive dehumanization. How is he going to do it? Because if the problem is that we have found the creature more fascinating and lovely than the creator then the way in which he's going to break the spell in the end is he's going to show himself to be better than our idols. There's a prayer for you. Jesus, show me, how, show me how lovely you are. Because for whatever reason, I can't break this in me. And it's all because I've not seen you to be better than whatever this other stuff is. And it's tyrannizing me. He says, "If you'll seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, these other things will be added to you. <laughs> but if you seek those things first, not only you're not going to get God, you won't get the things you're after either. It's a pitiful position. My point is, is that the spell is only broken when we see Jesus in all of His beauty, and I promise you, in the weeks to come, it's coming in spades. But I think for now, we need to actually repent of all the ways that we try to get Him back. Some of us are going to go back to the well of guilt." Oh, I know, a little more guilt. That'll help. We'll self-shame. I know, we'll pour more shame on it. That'll fix it. We'll, we'll start over. We'll have more willpower this time. Maybe we'll ask Jesus into our heart again in the hopes that maybe somehow I can get him to me. None of those things can break the spell. And all I'm simply offering you is just to stay tuned because the way he's going to unpack it, I promise you, is going to shock you. But in the end, it's going to be beautiful maybe even beautiful enough to break this and to get us out of this stance of wrath. Interested? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would lead us into that, that we would rally around with just that anticipation. Show us. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. We want to see what it is that transformed these people, so many people. We need to hear again what transformed us because it's been years We've been walking in the Christian faith, but there's still this this Arminian withdrawal screaming at us, trying to tell us that it's still on our shoulders. Would you break us of that by giving us a fresh vision that you intend to sort of rid us of our idols and to heal our people? Would you do that? For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.